Next, on Book TV's Afterwards, former CIA intelligence analyst Nada Bakos looks at the inner workings of the agency and her work in tracking terrorists. She's interviewed by Democratic Representative Andre Carson of Indiana, a member of the House Intelligence Committee. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Welcome, welcome. Finally, you've launched a book, an exciting book. You've been on TV for the past several years. You've inspired movies. You're a rock star. I actually haven't inspired any movies. <laughs> I can honestly say there that. Are, there have been characters created around the work that you and some remarkable women have put in. Some other women. Some yeah. other women. It's phenomenal. I mean, you guys were like breaking glass ceilings long ago. Yeah, there were predecessors before me who did a lot of that work. But um, yes, when I joined the agency and became a targeting officer, there weren't a lot of women in the operations field um, in senior positions. Walk us through what inspired you to write the book and tell us what is a targeting, targeting officer, its importance, and your mission. So I actually joined as an analyst um, on the DI side, or mm -hmm. DA side, the analyst side. And I really, my intent when I was joining was to have a job where I could work overseas. Um, it was <laughs> You've always wanted to travel. I've always wanted to travel. I, I wanted to be immersed in other languages and other cultures and... I got lucky when I applied and they called and I actually got in in a completely different role. So by the time I became a targeting officer, I had been there for a little while and uh, the targeting officer job that I took at the time was in the operations side. Now tell us about the role that you initially took on. Um, the first job I actually had was a role in HR in organizational development. I was actually helping the operations side um, allocate resources and try to understand how they could best structure and modernize their workforce. Were those skills transferable? Well, you know, that wasn't actually how I started my whole academic and professional career. It's just kind of I ended up there. So my academic background was actually in economics. Economics. Now, you're from Texas originally, Montana. Right? Montana. Yeah. So did you always want to grow up and be an intel? You wanted to travel. I mean, you could have, you could have joined the circus. You could have joined a rock band. <laughs> Why the CIA, of all places? I might be a good backup singer, but I don't think Hello. I could pull off the vocals. Okay. Um, I really didn't focus on the CIA, especially when I was younger. I, I thought about law enforcement, mm. um, but I really was focusing on living overseas. And I yep. happened to see an ad in The Economist. Wow, great and, publication. Yeah, and it was, I was in my late 20s okay. by that point and went ahead and took a flyer and applied and luckily got a phone call. That's awesome. Now, having a background in economics, you had a global worldview, I'm assuming. You wanted to be a part of the global conversation. So when you came to the agency, were you disappointed when you got there? Were you surprised at some things? What did you expect? Did you expect to be jumping out of an exploding building and folks shooting at you? You know, because I didn't join the agency under the, I guess, delusions of Hollywood, yeah. I really didn't have expectations. And I had been in the workforce long enough by then, I was almost 30 or had turned 30, that I knew most institutions just had a bureaucracy that you had to deal with. There were everyday people walking around in every single building. 
So I, I wasn't um, expecting James Bond. Tell us about the culture at the agency. It's pretty diverse. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to blend into other countries. So it attracts people who are interested in, in global positions and, and living internationally and people that are um, mindful of other cultures because if you're moving through uh, another country and are disrespectful, mm-hmm. draw attention to yourself. Tell us about the mindset of some of the people that you were tasked to even track. What goes behind mm. that kind of mind? Of, I, mean, I mean, do you think these folks start off with this mission or they become radicalized over time? And they, what, what, what kind of rationale do they set within themselves to justify their actions? So there's a lot of, thankfully, been a lot of studies at this point about extremism writ mm-hmm. large, regardless of what kind of extremism. And there's a spectrum of why people join organizations and not everybody who embraces an extremist ideology becomes violent. So there's... I think um, the United States still has a long way to go to reflect on what's happening with us internally. But as far as that type of ideology goes, um, every, it seems like every individual is very unique in that aspect. So you were, you, you were hunting terrorists. You worked with a group of phenomenal women. What was the camaraderie like? Did this become the squad, the official squad, or did you guys bond together simply because of a male-predominated industry? So when I first joined as an analyst, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's gender equity on the analytic side. Mm-hmm. It was really based on your skill set and if you could write and brief a policymaker, mm-hmm. and that's what you were judged by. Uh, the gender uh, inequality was really more on the operation side. So... I knew so that when for, I moved For the viewer, over. make the distinction. So the distinction is the analyst on, in the analytic world, their job is to digest all of the information that's coming in, whether it's from our operations officers, other foreign intel agencies, or technical collection. They're taking in all of that information on the subject area that they're looking at, digesting it, pulling out the salient pieces wow. to then write products or give mm-hmm. briefings to policymakers. The ops side is what you think of when you see Hollywood, but it's never that sexy. Uh, Ops officers recruit people to spy for the United States. I can tell you, uh, during my time uh, at Indiana Department of Homeland Security in in the Fusion Center, the analysts did the bulk of the work. And we had analysts from the FBI there and other agencies there. And this was at the beginning of kind of Facebook and MySpace. So a lot of folks were creating fake profiles but the best analysts, and I'm being honest, were women because there was this instinctive thing to anticipate movements, anticipate actions, to kind of uh, create profiles that spoke to a particular target. That's so fascinating. What Do you think that women are unique in this regard in terms of anticipating human behavior and being able to project and being leaders with regards to men relying, but there's no, you talk about gender equity, but in the law enforcement and intelligence space, women have yet to get their fair due because of decades of discrimination. Speak on that for us. So normally I push back on that narrative a little bit Ah, because I do, I do, I just think that regardless if you're, you know, either gender or whatever you identify with, you can be good at a job. And your skill set is unique to the individual. But I do think that um, there is, there has been studies that women mature faster emotionally. So their emotional maturity <laughs> tends to be 
um, a little farther ahead, right. depending on different age groups. But as adults, I think we're all capable of, you know, we all have different skill sets. Fair. And the women that started out in the counterterrorism center, which came before me, that that unit, um, they were really doing that job in large part because it wasn't sexy work. They weren't being rewarded for that before 9-11. Sure. It was hard and arduous and detail-oriented and a slog. So I think that's how come they were just okay with not having the sexy position. There have uh, historically, and I know the CIA has in recent years changed this model as well as the FBI, allowing analysts and officers or agents on the FBI side to train together at least for the initial few weeks. Is that a great idea? Uh, yeah, I think it is actually a good idea. Okay. I think it's useful for um, all agencies to understand what each other does. Um, I also think it's useful for them to be able to share in a lot of the lessons learned. Why recreate the wheel? Mm -hmm. You know, the CIA has put a lot of time and energy into developing their um, schools. Mm -hmm. So all their training programs for analysts and, and case officers. I did work um, with law enforcement and there is a huge distinction between CIA and law enforcement. I worked on a joint terrorism task force uh, for a ATTF, while. Yeah. And, you know, CIA is charged with analyzing information uh, on foreigners. Mm -hmm. And they're also charged with conducting operations overseas that have to do with foreign entities. What they don't do is be able to arrest people or, as you well know, um, collect information on U.S. citizens or U.S. persons. They're sure. restricted from that as well. So there is a huge distinction where law enforcement is really about upholding rule of law. CIA is focused on collecting information, spying on other countries, and I guess you could say they're like the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> One is tasked with enforcing the law. The other is tasked with kind of breaking, breaking the law. law. Yeah. So Except not U.S. law. That's right. Now, now having said that, there's, there's been some controversy around the CIA's usage of drones. Some feel like that should be a responsibility solely given to the military. What are your thoughts? Hmm, that's... Is there a utility in allowing the agency to have capacity to operate drones? So, in, in my experience, um, I think that the agency does a great job of analytic targeting. Mm -hmm. that's, that's one place, I think, where CIA shines. They understand the analysis. They've been collecting this kind of information mm -hmm and looking at it for since the inception of OSS. Sure. So it's a finely tuned uh, program in the sense of they understand um, how to lessen the collateral targets. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know who needs to own the program itself. Mm -hmm. I don't have a great and clear answer for that. I just know that each agency is good at one, at one or two things, mm -hmm. and I think that we need to be focused on who, who's best to carry out the mission. I bring that up partly because everyone knows, or most people know who Osama bin Laden is. Uh, there was another figure that uh, you had a connection to with your service, uh, Zakarwi. Um, tell us about your experience tracking him and those around him. So I was charged, initially as the analyst, I was charged with looking at evaluating um, whether or not Iraq had anything to do with 9-11 and Al-Qaeda. And as an analyst, we had been writing products for policymakers and briefing them, and our bottom line was that 
Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11 and Al-Qaeda. So there was not the connection there. After that, after the invasion, I, when I became a targeting officer, um, and Zarqawi had rose, into, or rose to prominence because he had been attacking targets inside of Iraq, and then eventually joined Al-Qaeda and created Al-Qaeda in Iraq, my job was to dismantle his network and his organization and his leadership. So it's, uh, it's similar, similar to being an analyst, um, but you're operationalizing the information. A lot of what we do in life um, manifests itself in our personal work. Um, you've had some defining moments in your life. Um, you lost your grandmother. I lost my grandmother. You lost your mom. I lost my mom. How did it impact you positively and negatively, and how has it shaped you to be the great person you've become? I mean, they certainly had a huge impact in, in shaping, you know, my focus in life. My mom and my grandmother loved to travel. They instilled, I think, that um, curiosity in me. My grandmother was always um, wanting to learn something new, so I think that had a big impact on me. But, the, yeah, loss and grief is just something I think that we don't um, talk about enough and the steps of that. I remember Googling this and, and trying to read books about how do you grieve. Sure. And yeah. it has a huge impact, I think, especially even as adults to lose a parent. But who are you most like, your grandma or your, your mom? I probably am most like my grandma. In what way? <laughs> she was, um, we'll say, strong-willed. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and you're strong. Had, will. A, has a, had a clear opinion, yeah. <laughs> sure. Now, how did she express herself? Um, probably more eloquently than me. She, mm-hmm. um, she, had, she, she was hilarious. She has mm-hmm. a very wry sense of humor. Um, and she's very articulate. She's, she was a great lady. And, and she's from Montana. She mm-hmm. was from Montana. She is from Montana, yeah. She was first generation. Wow. Tell us about your dad. My dad is also from Montana. Um, he, he also was a uh, second or third generation farmer, um, still lives in Montana. Did you pick up any skills growing up from, from the farming experience? Oh, yes. You learn how to persevere. When you get stuck in a field in a tractor by yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> at like 12, yeah. you figure out how to fix things. So, so you, you, you got your MacGyver skills from, from your dad. <laughs> Um, you're, you're a bit of a contrarian and an underrated comedian from your grandmother. What did you gain from mom? Mm, From my mom, probably empathy. Yeah. Um, my mom was a child, um, social, she was a social worker that focused on children. Mm. So, um, my mom was great with kids Mm -hmm. and yeah, she was, she was always the person that was hugging you, you know, super annoying when you're a teenager. Come <laughs> on. Exactly. Yeah. Now, 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 one would say, how could you be empathetic and work for the CIA? Mm. It's a contradiction. Yeah, I don't, it's not. Um, it, you can have your, your own moral compass and work for any organization. You know, you could, you could ask that about people who work for tech companies now because they're okay. quite often demonized in, in the news as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's up to the individual. What, what is your moral compass and stick with your own integrity? In the book, you, you describe Zakari's terrorism and the evolution of his capabilities from pre, the pre-Iraq war uh, while he was in Herat, uh, but for a bit all the way up to numerous attacks when actually he was responsible for what happened in Iraq. 
Take us through that journey. So from the be- kind of beginning of his uh, notoriety, he mm-hmm. just started out as a, as a street kid in mm. Jordan, in Amman, Jordan. He was getting into trouble. He, was, he had uh, criminal convictions. He'd been in and out of jail. He ended up in prison with uh, a radicalized cleric at the time who basically ended up radicalizing Zarqawi initially. And that, I think, for him was just a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose. Prior to that, his sense of purpose was drinking and doing all the fun stuff he wasn't supposed to be doing. Um, (laughs) So, you know, for him, that path, that, that extremist path for him was that sense of belonging and providing some kind of community and his sense of purpose and mission. And as soon as he latched onto that, he was totally focused and was starting to galvanize a network uh, since the early 90s. He moved into uh, um, Iraq prior to the invasion. He was co-located in northern Iraq with another terrorist organization called Ansar al-Islam. And he was focused on creating these rudimentary poisons, essentially. He was doing tests. And you know, at the time, the, the U.S. government knew he was there. Um, he was talked about in Colin Powell's speech, but he hadn't joined Al-Qaeda. He just had this loose network. He was pulling from the Maghreb, from the Levant, uh, from the Caucasus. He had quite a diverse group, but it wasn't this cohesive unit like in a hierarchical structure like Al-Qaeda has. What lessons can we learn from the war in Iraq now that we're talking about going to war with Iran and dealing with weapons of mass destruction, exaggerations to say the least, um, aggressive intel reporting, perhaps kind of mischaracterizing Iraqi ties to terrorism and even weapons of mass destruction, and really pressure from top political brass uh, in the Bush administration uh, resulting in kind of politicizing um, intelligence and the reporting process. How do we? What, what What are some takeaways from the Iraqi War? I think some of the the biggest takeaways, especially for members of the public, is to question, regardless of of if it's an anonymous statement, um, ask for receipts, ask for declassifying reports as much as possible, so that we can understand the reasoning and the detail behind it. I also think during that time period is when. Um, perfecting the soundbite to change the narrative really took a huge, huge, was a huge role in in the decision for the Iraq War and the galvanizing that kind of support for it. I think it was just a snowball effect that every time they said the same thing over and over on TV, it just had the impact of, well, this must be the truth, regardless of what else was being said and the nuance of the language. You know, when we talk about wars in our country, the Iraq War... Desert Storm, Vietnam, so many wars, oftentimes our troops, and I can tell you as a politician, you go to any town hall and say, bring back our troops, you get a standing ovation. But oftentimes folks in the intelligence community who serve are overlooked. We talk about troops who suffer from PTSD. How many folks, how many unsung heroes are there in the IC, the intel community, who suffer from PTSD, and are we doing enough to address those issues in a real way within the 16 agencies tasked with protecting Americans? 
I think there's probably um, a lot of people like me who didn't realize that they had PTSD. It wasn't until I hit rock bottom that I even had the understanding of what it was. And I say rock bottom as in just unable to do the everyday normal things. Sure. Um, and I, I had talked to a friend of mine who had the same experience. Didn't realize until we slowed down and we were out of the agency that this is something that we have to deal with and that we had been going through. So I don't know how many people it impacts, um, but I, I'm hoping that at least acknowledgement by the IC that this happens, mm-hmm. that you don't have to even be in a war zone. You can be just constantly inundated with you know, graphic imagery and, and yes. constantly reading about this information. And your role is to then make sure that the policymaker understands it or stop it from happening. You know, this has an impact on the human psyche. And I think the sooner we get ahead of that, at least a little bit, to acknowledge what's happening, um, then we will be much better off. So it's not just in the war zone, and I can relate to that seeing documents regularly, but it's not just being in the war zone, to your point. It's about maybe the organization and having a culture of being vulnerable. You know, I I spoke to a CIA official the other day, and uh, she's a trailblazer, and she mentioned that the culture is changing a bit, where you have this kind of superhero mentality, Mm -hmm. but there are wraparound services being provided for officers and analysts to be able to seek help and get treatment, where it's no longer a bad thing to be open about depression or any other illnesses are we doing enough what 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 else should be done should we should we even look at management and some managers who happen to be tyrannical my philosophy is that everyone should work for a tyrant at least once if you survive (laughs) if you survive maybe you'll become a tyrant but if you survive in a healthy way you become a more compassionate leader are managers a part of the problem too I think they can be in almost any organization. I mean, I'm relieved to hear that they're focusing on having some kind of wraparound service because while I was in, there was a huge stigma of even acknowledging that you might need some kind of therapy. Has to be reported um, according to your national security agreement. And, you know, there were people that really felt like they were retaliated against while I was there just for the mere fact that they were in therapy. So I'm glad to hear that there's an evolution hopefully taking place. And I hope that it's enough, but that it, the culture is definitely going to need to embrace this and change and shift focus of this being, a, you know, mental health being such a, a stigma around therapy and counseling and acknowledging you need some help. It's another organ in our body. Why we treat it that way is beyond me. You know, it's something that I'm certainly passionate about, um, having a mother who suffered from schizophrenia. I understand how in different work environments it's very tough when you have stressors or uh, you have managers or coworkers, um, and if you're not strong enough and assertive enough, you can allow these folks to gaslight you into depression, and you're fearful to your point of even seeking help. What 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 might be done, and what would you say to anyone considering a career in the IC and the CIA specifically? Hmm. So it, it it's changed a little since I've been there, and I know that the competition is fierce. You know, I think about if I would have been applying now, there's no way I would get in. The, you know, and I'm, I'm listening to grad students and PhD students talk about what their credentials are and they're applying for the CIA. It's 
they're getting cream of the crop at this point. It's what does that look like? Amazing. Ivy League? Do you have to be bilingual? Rhodes Scholar? <laughs> well, I mean, I hope it's not all Ivy League or we're missing a huge pool okay. of people that <laughs> sure. can also add value. Um, it's people that are really focused in, and driven to um, participate in national security. Their goals and their languages they're bringing to um, just the mere grad students I've talked to, it's, it's incredible. So you you um, you talk about struggling with panic attacks, um, irritability. <laughs> you talk to my family. <laughs> <laughs> She's the one doing the gaslighting. Um, no, but so how 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 long has it taken you? And perhaps you're still struggling with with, with some of the after effects of, of your service. Have those panic attacks and that irritability and maybe even the PTSD in a very real sense carried on and how much of that have you carried with you in your new chapters? I mean, it certainly changed me going forward. I mean, I am a different person today than I was um, prior to even acknowledging that I had it. Are you more suspicious of people? No. Are you glass half full or empty or full or empty? Well, I consider it to be pragmatic. Some people might consider it to be... (laughs) Cynical? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Okay. But, you know, it's years of therapy. It's a Mm -hmm. lot of hard work. Sure. Um, Really intense at first, but there is light at the end of that tunnel. Mm -hmm. You know, some of those symptoms go away. Um, But I think... It's for, forever changing as far as your outlook on life, things you appreciate. You know, I appreciate little things and, and things every day that I wouldn't have before. Like what? Um, going to Starbucks. Yeah, I mean, just, about, okay. yeah, leaving the house, going okay. out, enjoying time with friends, just mm-hmm. doing things that, you know, maybe it's old age. I don't know. Oh, enjoying whatever. things that are much simpler. <laughs> Being able to take your phone into a room without having to leave it in a secure area. It, that's nice. That yes. is nice. Yeah, that is nice. Uh, being able to talk on the phone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Talk about what I do. Okay. Yeah. Gossip. Gossip, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, what did you miss when you were overseas? Things that normal folks take for granted. Hmm. So it's pre-Netflix, though. Well, in Iraq, I missed coffee. Is that right? Because at the time when I was first there, we weren't in a setup that really had access to things like that. So I was eating MREs and making sun tea, which was fine, but I love coffee. Okay. Um, We talked about glass ceilings. I, I can remember a time working at the Intel Fusion Center representing Indiana State Excise Police. And there was this sentiment among police officers and analysts um, that the analysts did all the work, the police agencies, at least the big ones, and the FBI and others came in, they took all the credit. It's kind of a similar tension that exists even within the CIA when you have folks taking credit for pioneering work in the targeting officer arena, particularly you. Um, folks are getting accolades, and you're like, hello, I'm over here. Do you see me? How frustrating must that be? I mean, uh, to, uh, look, you kind of signed up to be invisible to some degree. Right. But you're still a human being. You still need atta girls and atta boys and pats on the back, and you want to feel validated for your work mm-hmm. and what you do. You want to feel appreciated. 
How annoying and frustrating <laughs> must that have been? Well, the analysts at the CIA actually have, um, they're at the pointy end of the spear, too. Mm. So they're, it's a very different situation within the CIA as an analyst versus FBI or other law enforcement. They aren't subject to having to ask the case officers or relay information to the agent. They're in charge of their own world, which is communicating with the policymaker. They're the ones taking the, the case officer's information and deciding whether or not it goes into the presidential daily brief. Mm-hmm. So I guess in that relationship, there's equal power um, versus mm-hmm. law enforcement. I know uh, in some cases still struggling with how they fit analysts sure. into sure. um, how they partner with them or work with them. Because I, after working at the Joint Terrorism Task Force, I could see how <laughs> the oh, yeah. huge distinction. But mm-hmm. the analysts there are also operational analysts for law enforcement. So mm-hmm. that is a very different um, type of work. You still stay in touch with some of your old buddies? Yeah, I do as much as possible. It's pretty difficult once you're out. Everyone's scattered, right? They're scattered. It's difficult to talk. You know, you can't talk openly. You can't discuss what they're doing um, at work. So it just starts, you know, communication shrinks after a while. It's incredibly difficult to have a family or even Mm -hmm. a relationship. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that dynamic, the familial dynamic. Now, having, you know, coming from a military family, having gone to Iraq and Afghanistan, visiting our troops and, and speaking with constituents. They talk about PTSD, a lot of Dear John and Dear Jane letters. What did you see from the IC? Do you see a similar kind of thing? Um, as far as PTSD or the and PTSD, Dear family. John, Dear Jane yeah. letters. This relative's sick. This mom has passed away. You're away. The guilt that's associated with it. Relationships faltering. Relation, relationships, yeah. It's, it's hard because... If you're, especially if you're having to live overseas and your spouse isn't able to change their job and move, you know, every few years, it's pretty difficult to be married to somebody who also has a career that doesn't work there or even inside the government. And for me, it became impossible. Now, the agency is pretty good, though, and the State Department's pretty good with helping spouses find employment through contracting or even with the government, right? You've seen um, those scenarios. Sort of. Okay, help us, it, understand. It's very help us case, understand the process. Yeah, it's very case dependent. In my case, there was there was really nothing for an option. Why? Um, my husband worked in technology, uh, okay. but his a huge part of what he was doing at the time was sales. That doesn't happen, you know, overseas necessarily. Mm-hmm. So he was really sort of locked into, do I move and transition into a totally different role and interrupt my career or... Do I, do I leave? So we ended up at the end. I ended up quitting my job. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that, the, <laughs> another source of irritability. Not at all. <laughs> no, man, okay. Um, there's a medic on, on set. Um, so, I mean, th- that kind of dynamic creates a serious imbalance in a relationship. It does. Yes, it does. And that... That, this, this is the operation side, granted. This doesn't sure. necessarily happen to analysts in that way. So I think it's based on the Cold War and even post-World War II paradigm. Yeah. That needs to modernize, and I don't have all the answers, but I think there's some things need to shift. And, and, and FaceTime won't cure it. Don't think so. Might. Mm. Actually, it could be great for some relationships. But not yours. Um, you know, take us to the point of where you were and where you are now and your future goals. Mm. Are you going to run for office? 
Are you gonna Are you gonna do more consulting? Are you gonna be an instructor? That's a good question. Okay. Um, if you have an answer for me, I am all ears. What does your gut tell you? You know, I'm still I'm still exploring where I can have an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, that's ultimately what drives me. I want to have an impact. I want to be able to do something interesting. Mm-hmm. It is kind of hard once you leave the CIA to find that sense of uh, mission and fulfillment. It was you know sort of an extraordinary place to work, in that sense. There are 16 agencies in the IC. Pick one. There are. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's only the CIA, we know, but there are some great agencies. I agree. Have. Maybe I'll just run for office. What are you thinking Everyone about? Everyone else is. What are you thinking not? about? Are you going to make an announcement? No, no. What would you run for? Oh, uh, I would start with running as a representative, maybe, if okay. I could get elected. You never know. Never know. This is your big break. Yeah. So would, would you consider being an instructor or teaching on college campuses? Absolutely, yeah. Have you explored the options? You can teach virtually I now. Have. Start a YouTube channel. I have. I will need to finish a PhD. Are, are you working on your... I don't know YouTube? if I'm... No, I'm not. I'm not working on that. You're doing something exciting. Uh, you know, um, I have... The book is exciting. The book is exciting. The book took... That was a labor, most definitely. What do you want people to know about this great piece of work? There it is. Look at that. <laughs> That Remarkable it, piece of work. It was, it was, uh, that was stuck with the government review process, actually. Um, this book took three years, four years to get out because it went into the review process yeah. and it needed to be reviewed by other agencies. And that process is very broken. Help us if understand. I can tell you, Congressman, yes. I can help you fix this. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> now, now, as as the chairman of the subcommittee over counterterrorism and counterproliferation, I meet with the CIA regularly. Is that something I should bring up? Yes, but with the DNI, actually. Um, this process is broken in its interagency stuff. So they don't have, CIA had no way to get it back from the other agencies. There's no deadline in those reciprocal agreements. They don't have the ability to call up and say, we need this by X date. So when, I, when it was stuck, and then I got back just a bunch of black pages with zero explanation, I had no way of sitting down and talking with anybody without actually filing a lawsuit, which I ended up doing, so that I could get them to the table to just discuss what it is we needed to change. So were some juicy details left out that really would have... Probably. Are you still disappointed about it? No, because I was able to to build the story around that with the, the essence of it. Okay, the essence of it. And, and what are the takeaways? No, we don't want to give the book away because it's a great book. But for those who are curious about The Targeter, for Netflix and Hulu, those folks <laughs> watching who want to do a movie based on The Targeter, <laughs> give us your sales pitch. You know, um, the subtitle is really ultimately what it's about. My life in the CIA, mm-hmm. um, hunting terrorists and challenging the White House. It's those three elements that are the primary themes in that book. Now, why would you even challenge the White House? It takes a bold person to challenge the White House. Who are you? I had a bold uh, chief Tell of us my about team. Your chief. Tell us about your well, chief. Well, our, our team was, as I mentioned before, charged with evaluating whether Iraq had anything mm-hmm. to do with 9-11 al-Qaeda. Sure. And the administration was looking for that angle. Um, not everybody within the administration, this is parts of the White House and part of the Pentagon, mm-hmm. were looking for that angle. And regardless of how we answered that question, 
when we answered it consistently after doing all of the analysis, mm-hmm. it, the question kept coming back, but just in different forms. And it, I think, was probably frustrating um, for some members of the White House. And for us, it was a lot of work because re- it didn't matter what we said. Uh, there were some folks in the then Bush administration who were set on tying Saddam Hussein into this scenario. Right. Um, political expedience, perhaps? Absolutely. Okay. Um, you know, there were different shops set up specifically to support that narrative mm-hmm. in a, at the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, our, our analysis was then being pitted against this other narrative that wasn't based in truth and fact. So it was pretty difficult, um, and, it, and it was really stressful for our team to, day in and day out, be kind of the punching bag for this. You mentioned, uh, as a dog lover, you mentioned a cuddly little fella or dog in this book. Tell us about that dog. Oh, Gus the St. Bernard. Yes. Um, adopted him, actually, here in D.C., and brought rescue him home. Dog? He was a rescue dog. Okay. He was about two years old when we Big adopted boy. him. Goodness. Yes. Yeah, all, like most St. Bernards. That's right. But unfortunately, the first thing he did was run up the stairs, and he didn't know anything about stairs, <laughs> and he couldn't get down. Oh. So that, that's in the book. If you want to know how he gets down, you have to buy it. <laughs> you have to buy it. Now, you, you still have dogs. Yes. You have two dogs. Yes. Tell us about your two dogs. One's an Anatolian Shepherd, which is um, a breed from Turkey. And they are very independent. And if you want a dog that wants to boss you around, he's great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll literally argue with you. Okay. The other one was another rescue, um, a Corgi Bassett Jack Russell named Stanley. Now, um, which one is, is really Mama's dog who tries to please you? Colin, the first one. Really? Yeah. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> just, just a charmer. Pretty much. I think so, because he's super smart. Um, who's your favorite? Con. Gosh. <laughs> these dogs are going to see this interview and, ha- and feel a certain way. Poor Stanley. Okay. Um, you, you, you talk about the dynamics of raids in your book. How does a raid even take place? Mm. You know, at the time in Iraq, uh, thankful for military planning, mm-hmm. um, there were different task forces, depending on who was lead at the time in special forces. So uh, the raids were either based on, you know, one task force, uh, one branch of the military, or the other. And most of the time, CIA doesn't go along on those. We're not really part of that. We're feeding the intelligence that they actually use. Some case officers who are trained or in paramilitary will go along. But in this case, when we first got there, it was like a wild, <laughs> sort of wild west. Um, I ended up on a couple of those because I happened to know information about the target, had done some of the initial analysis, was trying to help um, with questions and what would come next, what maybe what to expect. So that we were not at all, I was not at all prepared for anything like that. And in, in, in Chapter 7... You wrote about something that uh, really frustrated your work. Uh, I'm referencing, of course, the Habush letter. And in fact, you call this type of thing a backward-looking request or a question. And these types of questions or deviations seem to be quite prevalent in your work. They took you you off course, of course. But 
for a significant amount of time. Take us through that letter and how did it really impact your work and the work of your colleagues? So that's a good example. This letter was recovered after the invasion um, somewhere inside of Iraq. Right. And it was talking about um, connections between the regime and tangential members of al-Qaeda. There was a lot of discrepancy within the letter itself. You could tell by the first read that Mm -hmm. there were so many inaccuracies. There was just no way most of this could plausibly be true. But Mm -hmm. our job was to, to not go there with preconceived, you know, bias, mm-hmm. was to analyze the entire thing. So we did point by point. We also had the letter in the ink itself um, analyzed by another government agency. And after all was said and done, not only did the information within the letter not add up at all, we were able to actually use other pieces of information that we know had been validated to um, refute that. The paper in the ink was not old enough to be able to have been drafted prior to the war. I don't want to give too much away, but uh, you said something in Chapter 10 about more the, the more higher-profile attacks uh, that Zakari was responsible mm-hmm. for in Iraq. Uh, this includes a UN bombing and a bombing of uh, Shia Imam Ali uh, Mosque or Masjid, which was a prominent mosque with the Shia community. Uh, you were one of the first to start drawing connections between these bombings and the ones Zakari. Uh, did with his network. How did you make that connection? Was it a, was it a group effort, or oh, yeah. how much of that was driven by your instincts? It was a group effort. Actually, I had a colleague that was um, that I talk about in the book that was really helping pull th- those threads together. That was actually out in Iraq, and that was some of our. That one really stands out to me as one of the first, just incredibly egregious bombings that Zarqawi did, just killing. So many innocent people that were civilians inside of Iraq. It was just incomprehensible to me that this was going to be his MO. Sure. And it was an, it was an entire team effort. Uh, my colleague that was out in Iraq at the time um, helping piece together some of the information. And uh, I was doing the other end, back end of that analysis. And uh, then I ended up turning that into a presidential daily brief to mm. um, inform the administration that Zarqawi was not only still there, but... He was actually conducting these kinds kinds of operations. What goes into a presidential daily brief? I mean, it, it's a mysterious thing. Um, what kind of work goes into that kind of briefing? And it's important. I, I, one who was tasked with assembling that briefing—it's it, a tremendous honor. Were you? Did you feel honored, or by that time were you dejected and like, uh, whatever? They're not going to listen to me. No, no, I was okay. all in on on because you typically in your career as an analyst, you you know get to write just a few of those, and mm-hmm. it just. For a while, the churn out of our branch was there was a presidential daily brief or two coming out every week. Mm-hmm. But it's those are difficult because you're you're on the cutting edge of what's happening, but you're still having to um, analyze the information and make sure that that there is truth to it, the veracity can mm-hmm. hold up uh, to questioning, and that you are giving the president very accurate information. But it still has to be at the forefront of whatever the issue might be. So it's those are in. Uh, it's an intense process. You send it out to all of your colleagues that it, you know it's relevant subject matter to them, and then they get to hack it up in email yeah, yeah. over in front of thousands of people. <laughs> I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that you have a fascination with turtles. You even name one of your chapters a bucket oh. of turtles. Tell us about chapter twelve. Um, my some of my chapter titles come from my old boss. And he, yes, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have some great chapter titles. Those are 
Uh, you were inspired by a very popular <laughs> book that became a movie? Uh, no. Okay. So, are you talking about Zero Dark Thirty? Is that what you're talking about? No. You tell us. No, I don't want to give anything away. So, because I was not part of the Bin Laden process, right. that one's not at all based on me. But the Book of Turtles <laughs> came from a book. Yeah, that wasn't either. <laughs> okay, Are you sure? Yeah, I'm positive. Okay, I don't want to get you in trouble with your yep. old boss. No. Okay, Sad. so tell us about a book of turtles. Well, so it was a bucket of turtles, and my boss would always say, um, <laughs> life around here is like a bucket of turtles, everybody scrambling to get to the top. Slowly. Yeah, <laughs> not very well. <laughs> A bucket of turtles. We had a few frustrating days. And that's what I tried to portray in this book, was the realistic walking through of what it's like to work there. And as you know, incredible and amazing as some of the work is and, and the colleagues that you're working with, there just can be such absurd things that happen at the same time. Not crabs in a barrel, a bucket of turtles. A bucket of turtles. Wow. Yeah. That seems like a very slow process yeah. of just snapping and... Uh, basically. Not very effective. Not very effective. What, what what did you guys do on like weekends or your days off? Did you did you did work on a rotating shift? Tell uh, us about it. Initially, during the initial invasion, we did work on a rotating shift. I worked an early briefer shift where I went in with a colleague and we briefed the briefers. So those that were going out to brief the policymaker, like the presidential daily or the president's briefer, the vice president's briefer. Um, I worked an early shift to do that during the initial invasion. And then after that, it was really just based on the work itself. And for a long time, we were putting in, you know, 12, 13, 14 hour days. Um, so I, I'm, not many bowling alleys in Iraq. Um, what did you guys do for fun? Did you guys play video games? Did you guys make up games? Mm. You guys go to the stay on base and. Yeah, you know, especially when I was there, it was just working around the clock and then, you know, wake up, work. Eventually you'd go to bed, you know, 11, 12 at night. What was something that you look forward to doing besides sleeping during the <laughs> week with, with, with your work colleagues? Oh, well, um, the camaraderie that you mm. can build up, it's similar to the military when you're in a situation like that. There's not many places for you to go. Sure. Um, there were few nights that mm -hmm. we all got together, and there was a makeshift bar that we built near yeah. our workspace. So mm -hmm. that you know, like I had a Fourth of July there that kind of stands out. Any keg stands or what? Any foam parties? What? No, no. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no pong, anything? No, we weren't even that exciting. Okay. <laughs> now you're. <laughs> Okay, now you're going back to your CIA self, right? It was, you know, things like when you're walking between the, the, the bar and where you're working to make sure you're not stepping on any uh, IEDs that were still left Fair enough. around some of the area we were staying in. So you kind of wanted to stay sober. But on your off days, surely you still came into the office, right? Oh, yeah. There was no off day, yeah. Why would anyone want that kind of career for themselves after listening to you? Well, <laughs> you know, um, I, think, I think being there, especially during uh, wartime, is, is unique. And it doesn't always have that frenetic pace. I was there 
right before and after 9-11, and that frenetic pace just continued, you know, mm-hmm. and of course, and pile of rock on top of that, and it's just, that was just a constant. I, it's not always, obviously, like that, mm-hmm. hopefully, for the United States in general, and we don't take these steps lightly and turn sure. into conflict. But being able to serve your country, uh, and if you're at all inquisitive about the world, mm-hmm. um, national security objectives, and supporting policymakers, it's a fantastic place to work. How much excess is in our military budget? I don't know if that's a fair question, but you often hear members of Congress talk about cutting back on our military spending. Do we need to cut back, or, or are we not spending enough? I think it's fair to take uh, a really in-depth look at how the military spends. Mm-hmm. I think, obviously, from news articles uh, more recently, the accountability that was not happening inside of Iraq, especially at the time with contractors, that is inexcusable to me. There's, there's really absolutely no reason that the United States government should have handed over money without accountability and responsibility. I can remember a lot of guys leaving the police department and going to work with the contractors. But also at that time, I remember caused a lot of resentment amongst the enlisted folks in the military, the contractors. I mean, they're still getting three square meals a day. The military is essentially kind of helping to protect them, and they're making like six figures. Right. There's, I think that's problematic, and I okay. think it creates an inequity that shouldn't exist. If you're mm-hmm. asking, asking people to serve sure, um, and then asking them to do that alongside people who are now making three times as much yeah. for semi-similar position, but mm-hmm. not even putting themselves at much risk, that's that's... That can be problematic. The agency changed and reformed how they hired and allowed people to leave and go to work for contractors, actually during the time period that I was there. If you had an opportunity to go back and work for a contractor, would you do it? Depends on, the, on what I would do. Okay. Depends on the role. It depends on the role. Were you ever heartbroken um, at seeing some teenagers overseas in uniform? Um. For the U.S. military? Yes. Absolutely. Um, you know, just driving around and seeing these really young Marines, mm. you know, they're just draped over the top of their Humvee, just trying to get a little bit of rest and sleep. And, yeah, I wanted to, I was not a mom, but I wanted to oh. mom all of them. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's heartbreaking. And I that's what I think, putting the face on, on resources mm-hmm. that we need when we enter these conflicts and enter these wars, I think that has to be, the first conversation we have mm-hmm. as a member of the public. What yeah. are you asking of us besides money and our children? Sure. How much and is it worth it? What do politicians need to understand as it relates to the conflicts that we have? And you know, the question is, should, America's, should America be the world's police? Do we have that kind of responsibility to some degree? We're the, we're the wealthiest nation in recorded history. Um, people are critical of the CIA as it relates to intervening in elections, but yet we're critical of other governments trying to intervene in our elections. How important is the CIA in that work, and should we even try to police the world? So I hear that analogy a lot about the CIA intervened, so therefore it was okay, or not necessarily okay, but why, of course, Russia would intervene in our elections. But to that, I would say there is, especially for us, a distinct difference um, in how the agency conducts their work. This disinformation campaign that Russia engaged in 
uh, compared to, I'm not excusing any, you know, erroneous things that the CIA or U.S. government have engaged in, but it's our national security to start with. And mm-hmm. for us, we can't dismiss it. If we, if we always said, well, we did this earlier, that we would have no national security objectives. Um, if, if we can't dismiss something that's actually attacking us inside of our own country. Is it true that a lot of countries and their leaders criticize us publicly, but privately they beg for our assistance and help? You might know that question better than I do at this point. So I'll turn that yeah. on you. <laughs> do you think that there's truth to that? Of course. Yeah. Of course. I mean, look, I'm for world peace, um, but I think that keeping people safe can be a muddy business. And the, the boundaries can become hard to determine when you're dealing with countries who practice normalized corruption, um, who really don't have our core values. Some would argue we don't have values, but, but, but I still say that the IC is important. Our military is important. Can we have a broader discussion about reining in spending without question? Can we have an even deeper discussion about our excessive presence globally? Without question. But at the end of the day, I think it's important to know what other people think because if we were not protecting ourselves, surely as was evidence in the 2016 election, folks would infiltrate our country and do a lot more damage than we've seen. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. Um, and, and the question about whether or not we should be the world police, yeah. I think the question really is, is what, do we, what kind of world do we want to live in mm. and what kind of values do we want to support of our own? You know, is it making sure we always have the right guy in place that's malleable? Or mm. is it we're going to really focus on stemming the tide of humanitarian disasters? We have to, I think mm. we have to figure out what's our priority at this point. Must there be a single priority? There doesn't have to be a single priority, just okay. like there's a myriad of national security objectives. I agree. Thank you so much. Oh, thank this you. This has been fun and yeah. exciting. If you want a good read, The Targeter, you promote your own book. Tell them what you want to tell them. <laughs> the Targeter is available at your bookstore, at Amazon, Barnes mm-hmm. & Noble. Um, yeah, hopefully it's an entertaining and, and still insightful read, and I hope a lot of young women choose a path in national security. If you want to read it, read about a real-life Captain Marvel, <laughs> go get the Targeter. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>